Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 8th, 2021. I am John Bodhorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Noah Rothman is out this week with me as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Just so one, one note, if you go to the July-August issue of Commentary, either online or if you get it in your mailbox, uh, as you should, uh, there is a wonderful memoir there uh, by Roger Bennett on growing up as a Jew in Liverpool in the 1970s and early 1980s and how he developed a passionate love for the United States. Roger's book, Reborn in the USA, debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, that, that, that's in the New York times on the 18th of July. So, uh, we have an excerpt from it, go read it and then buy the book. Um, you will be happy reborn in the USA. Um, so that's my first note, just to make the point that we have an excerpt from a number one bestseller. My second note is that, um, uh, COVID cases are up. We have a lot of, uh, we were like, plunging down below the 10,000 mark just like a week, week and a half ago. And, uh, the numbers now seem to be rising into uh, case numbers into the 15,000, 20,000 range. Now the New York times number, I think yet this morning, which was 15,000 new cases does indicate 162 deaths, which means that there are more cases and the lethality of the virus is going down. When when we had higher case number, we would generally there would be there would be more deaths. Um, this is the thing about the the highly contagious Delta variant is that um, it is not clear that while it is it is clear that it is more contagious than the original, uh, either because so many people are vaccinated and if they and and what very few number of people get it apparently it 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 makes the disease all but asymptomatic or very, very mild, or it's just not as bad, the Delta variant. It's not, it's not as dangerous. Um, combining that with the fact that they now know how to treat people so that they, so that the treatment doesn't, isn't worse than the disease, which was, uh, somewhat the case, at least in the early going, uh, last year in the spring. Um, uh, this of course is bad in 17 different ways. And aside from the whole question that we've made a little fun of, which is that people seem to be worried, not that the Delta variant is going to lead to the gamma variant or the Lambda variant, or there, there is a term, I guess the Lambda variant is the term that's now being used. Well, the, the Lambda variant is a thing. Is a thing. It's yeah. apparently like originated in Peru. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, that, that that we're not afraid that this virus is the one that's going to kill us, but that, that this virus will mutate into a into another form of the virus that will be that will evade the protections of the mRNA vaccines in particular, and then will be in in, in real trouble again. Um, so you can sort of make fun of that. In other words, like restricting people now in order to prevent that later is maybe a you know a bridge too far. But uh, it gets us back to this question of what is the public health response supposed to be? And I keep getting emails from listeners, very nice listeners, or not necessarily very nice listeners, explaining their reasons for not getting vaccinated and complaining that I say, you know, people who don't get vaccinated are idiots and all of that. And what what is what is fascinating is that this has become a marker to people of a kind of courage uh, some people of not getting vaccinated, they are not giving in to, you know, the conventional liberal wisdom in some fashion. And that just seems deranged that somehow and you're giving in to sort of authoritarian impulses by taking voluntarily submitting yourself to a vaccination regime. Okay. But, but okay, I'm not, I'm not going to play devil's advocate for people who still refuse vaccination. Cause I think everyone should get vaccinated, but I, I will say this, that there's the evidence for a lot of their concern comes directly from the Biden administration's message uh, about vaccination. So yesterday we had Biden. And again, I'm not 
like a lot of crazier right-wing media saying that he meant this literally, but he said, you know, we're going to go door to door. We're going to really try to get people to get vaccinated who are the holdouts. That was, of course, uh, mutated into, into some argument about, you know, government people coming and knocking down your door and forcing vaccination on you. That's not what he meant. What he meant is that they're really going to continue to try to do this targeted outreach to communities that are still resisting. But then, you know, his HHS secretary goes on CNN and starts talking about vaccination in a very weird way. So he he said, you know, we want to give people the sense that they have the freedom to choose vaccination, but we hope they choose to live. We hope people make the right choices. We're America. We try to give people as much freedom and choice as possible. But, you know, we really want to make sure everybody gets vaccinated. So to someone who's already suspicious of government intervention in their lives, and particularly government-sponsored medical intervention, that's not a great message, right? It's not, well, we know you love freedom, but there's a better way to to make this argument. There's also got to be an acknowledgement at some point that some people will always refuse vaccination. That's just, there's going to be a population that never gets the shots. And for whatever reason, But the Biden administration's messaging on this hasn't been helping their efforts to reach the populations that they claim to want to reach. Okay, so, but I have a problem with the response to the, we're going to go door to door. Uh, Because Dan Crenshaw, whom I like, the congressman from Texas, and I think is a very, you know, American hero and very admirable person and funny and has a good light spirit. Uh, said, you know, don't you come knocking on my door, you know, uh, government man, this is terrible. I, I, frankly, I mean, I sort of understand the uh, power of that statement. It seems crazy to me. Uh, Someone comes knocking on your door and says, hi, I'm from the government. I have a vaccine. Do you want to take it? You just say no. All well, and they've been about. doing that. It, right. Local officials have been yeah. doing that in my city for, for months. It hasn't right. worked, but they've right. been doing it. I understand. But what I'm saying is fine. So they are the whole purpose of this is they are trying to make vaccination as easy as possible. And so that no one's coming to your door and saying you have to be vaccinated. You know, hi, I'm from the government. Here's my badge and here's my gun. And you have to be vaccinated. This isn't this is a. uh, uh you know, so tr- when you have Republicans treating an effort like this as though it were a, uh, you know, as though it were the, you know, the IRS coming to your door to arrest you for tax evasion, uh, that I understand why that's a politically potent message uh, right now. But see, I'm sorry, it's incumbent on the Biden administration to do better messaging on this. They've had the time to figure this out. They know that people, particularly the holdouts, have deep suspicions of the government. And it's not just crazy white poor Trump voters. It's also African-Americans in many cities that are controlled by Democrats. There is a, there's a suspicion about the government. And I think that I really put the, the onus here on the Biden administration. He shouldn't be so cavalier in the language he uses about something that's so sensitive to so many people. So I agree. I mean, you don't want to have the backlash okay. that's a reaction, but yeah. he, they should do better. But the answer, I think, is the ultimately is the answer that you gave, which is that we this is a gigantic social experiment. And what we're learning is that there is a significant population of people who are not going to go along with it. And at some point you have to sort of like close up shop and say, it's there. If you want to get it, it's there. It's at your drugstore. It's at, it could be at your doctor's office. I mean, I guess there are issues with, you know, storage at the incredibly cold temperatures for the MRNA vaccines, but it's there. Go get it. Uh, and if not, not. And then the, the real push question is going to be when, when the emergency approval is replaced by general approval and what happens with kids and whether there is going to be some kind of a gigantic outbreak of anti-vax sentiment about uh, mandatory vaccinations for school children, which is a whole other issue. And obviously, I guess if you're an adult and you refuse to get the vaccine and you have kids, you're not going to want your kids to get the vaccine either. And then the rubber, you know, the rubber will meet the road, uh, and there's even a there's even a to perfectly credible argument for why kids shouldn't be vaccinated, right? Their kids don't don't get it. They don't die from it. They hardly get it. They there's very little evidence that they can transmit it. But of course, all of these things relate to the original coronavirus, and we don't know what the 
consequences are going to be of the mutations and whether they will follow the same, you know, the same epidemiological pattern. Um, presumably at some point, uh, the virus can mutate in such a way that it will have, a, uh, an effect, a worse effect on kids than, than, than the original did. After all, this is like the first pandemic in world history, where children seem to be relatively immune and it was the old who were disproportionately hit. So, um, I, I just think we're, we're living in this poisonous moment in which even a, a very rational, ordinary, I think mostly very conservative, but, but in fact, in his, in his spirit, middle of the road, Republican, like, like Dan Crenshaw goes with this populist, don't tread on me, Gadsden flag message about, something that is not coercive, that is not actually coercive. So I agree entirely that the Biden administration's messaging on this has been a failure and a failure in a, in a number of ways. And for a long time at the same time, um, I think the problem is, is bigger than that because it's hard to imagine um, a successful Biden messaging strategy on this because the very idea that the administration is recommending it uh, in any way, whatever its message behind it, is sort of is is a part of the turnoff um, from getting it. There's sort of nothing that um, the establishment could say that would convince those who are suspicious of the establishment to get the vaccine. Well, it sort of mirrors, doesn't it, the way that when Trump was urging the reopening of schools when he was still president, lots of otherwise rational people on the other side of the political aisle suddenly decided that they were trying, that Trump was trying to kill children and teachers, right? Even though the evidence was very clear that what he was arguing for was the best thing for school kids and the states that reopen have, have proven that. But as soon as Trump said reopen schools, right. there was a whole migration of people who, who set reason aside for, for political partisanship and opposed it. Well, I mean, that is, of course, the counterfactual you want to run in your head. Like uh, those 43,000 votes in Arizona and uh, and Georgia and Michigan or whatever go the other way, and Trump wins the election instead of loses it, uh, and he becomes the premier advocate for the vaccination regime. And who gets it and who doesn't get it then? Oh, yeah. I mean, it would be then a kind of loyalty test for Trumpian Republicans who seem, I think, I mean, I don't know if they're Trumpian Republicans. It could just be rural people in this, you know, thing I keep saying, which is I think that there's a needle phobia thing going on that we haven't, that people haven't adequately taken the measure of. But I mean, we already had Kamala Harris say in September that she wasn't going to necessarily trust that the, that the vaccine regime promulgated by Trump would be one that she would trust, right? I, I I am certain that the sides would be reversed on this um, had that gone the other way. And it would arguably have been worse because you would have seen mainstream media backing up all these stories about supposed linked uh, illnesses and, uh, uh, um, you know, bad consequences from those who got vaccines. It would have there, there would have been some push, at least some. Uh, uh, continued push about this narrative that the vaccine was rushed through for political reasons right. and maybe some corners were cut. Well, look, the anti-vax movement, I mean, people now seem to have come to the point of associating the anti-vax movement with the right. And of course, the anti-vax movement really began in the early 90s with a spike, with a kind of unexplained and still unexplainable spike in the diagnosis of autism in children and the desperate effort of parents to try to understand why it was that suddenly one in 166 kids was being diagnosed as autistic. And so they look to, they imagine they look to vaccines as maybe one of the causes, right? So that was not a right wing cause. The, the suspicion of uh, drug companies and vaccinations and things like that was a left wing environmentalist cause at the time very much so like alar and apple like the whole idea was that there was this kind of co chemical industrial complex that was foisting 
uh, ingestibles and injectables and things like that on the American people for profit making reasons uh, that had uh, would have terrible consequences on the on the human you know uh, genome somehow um, and it was Meryl Streep who said don't eat an apple because there's this thing called alar that makes apples look redder and it'll kill you and that wasn't true wasn't going to kill you had no had no harmful but it wasn't you know preppers and survivalists and rural people like this was a there was a gigantic tort bar that arose for the purpose of making billions of dollars suing pharmaceutical companies trying to get their clients before juries saying my 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 client was irreparably harmed by some by some pill that they took and and you know uh uh, it's not just opioid, you know, the, the, the finding against Purdue Pharma on fentanyl and opioids and all of that is the tail end of 30 years of a litigation strategy on the part of the tort bar to, to wring money out of pharmaceuticals, uh, on the, on the claim that even things that had been approved after seven, after decades of trial and error and all of that were harmful. And so we're now this note. We, again, we've come to the point where this idea is that only conservatives distrust science. Well, when I was a, when I was a growing up, it was hippies that distrusted science or who distrust science. And then it was kind of mainstream. It was 60 minutes that distrusted science. It was, you know, Aaron Brockovich who distrusted science. That was where science distrust was sown. And so this notion that somehow, you know, uh, you know, and then even, and then other stuff like the horrible government experimentation on black, you know, the, 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 the Tuskegee experiments with syphilis and all of that, like, so people, the sowed mistrust was not sown by, by our side, uh, but it dovetailed with, the rise of, you know, you then you dovetail it with Ruby Ridge and Wake Up, the sort of the rise of the notion that the government is actively looking to destroy anti-government rural communities that set up on their own for their own purposes and want to protect themselves and then get, you know, attacked, right? And attacked by the FBI, attacked by the ATF. Um, but I think it's an important qualification that uh, people seem to love this idea that this is all a kind of this aligns neatly uh, politically. But as Christine, as you say, the the fact that African American communities in particular seem as maybe not, but I really know, but as vaccine hesitant as some of these rural communities, where in fact, by the way. Uh, they're mu- much more at risk. You're much more at risk in a, you know, in a densely packed urban setting from COVID than you are if you live in a farming community and you're, you know, five acres, a quarter of a mile away from the next farm. Well, and this is why, uh, to again, to uh, beat the dead horse of why I blame the Biden administration's messaging and the Trump administration was equally bad about messaging this too, but there are different rationales for people's resistance. So if you're, you know, kind of conservative leaning rural uh, dweller, the fear of government isn't that it's going to come and experiment on you. The fear about government in general is that it wants you to become dependent on it, right? So you want to be self-reliant. You want to do your own thing and be left alone. And the fear is they're going to come in here and they're going to force you to become dependent on all these government things or, you know, force you to take vaccines or force you to do this or come seize your land if they need to use it for government purposes. There's a, there's a kind of general resistance to the idea that individuals should become dependent on the state. That is not the fear that's driving African-American communities communities and cities. There's the, the, it's a totally different thing. And so when, when Biden says they're going to target you know, the messaging to different communities, that would be great. But I don't see any evidence that that's what they're doing or that they have a good plan for that. So when I hear the HHS secretary going on CNN and saying, yeah, we know you love your freedom, but really all these people have died. What's the matter with you? You've got to do this. That doesn't resonate with either community, right? Because one doesn't want to be dependent on the government and doesn't believe it needs the government's help. The other one is more dependent on government, but doesn't trust the government has their interest in mind because they're a minority. So both of that messaging doesn't work for either group. I, I don't think. Um, it's fiendishly complicated. And the other thing, by the way, is the is the simple pragmatic 
fear, which connects to the Biden fear and connects to uh, pragmatic fear on the part of people who are resisting vaccination, who didn't like lockdown, who, you know, who, a, who are now saying the lockdowns were bad and stupid and foolish, which we don't know. I mean, I, I am, we were as hostile to the, you know, to the love of lockdown as anybody could be. We can't ru- again, we can't run some kind of a simulation that tells us what would have happened with the spread of COVID had there not been lockdowns. Um, obviously, a lot of the lockdown stuff turned out not to be needed, particularly the sort of the cleaning regimes and all of that. Um, uh, but the social distancing, we just generally, we, we don't know. I mean, we do seem to know that in indoor spaces, uh, where, you know, where particle particulate matter comes out of people's mouths and hits other people, that that is a, is a form of spread that to this sort of this birthday party spread, uh, in, 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 in indoor spaces is a serious thing. So, you know, people are now saying, oh, lockdown was all, all lockdown was all terrible and lockdown was crazy and lockdown was awful. And we just, don't know how many people might have been saved by it. And so we should probably be more modest about claiming that it's wrong as the people who think that it was totally necessary in every particular seem to be immodest about claiming that it was necessary. And it's more than that. I mean, I, you know, personally, I suspect that at least the excesses of lockdown were a mistake. Um, But I understand um, um, certainly the initial impulse and the initial policy but um, the difference is, see, what, so to the extent that I think lockdowns were a mistake, I think they were a mistake, just that, because governments make mistakes a lot. Um, what the, the problem is that a lot of the people who are particularly hostile to this, they have mixed this all up with some sort of plot and uh, some sort of um, uh, conspiracy idea about lockdowns, that it wasn't a mistake. It was um, intended to sort of corral the American people for one reason or another to sort of, you know, foist some kind of um, new um, new safetyism regime on us. And depending on who you talk to and how crazy you get, it's in conjunction with the banks and with the whatever else. And, the, you know, the Gates Foundation, the Gates Foundation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so um, that's, you know, so again, what what mostly what I see people who are resistant to um, to vaccines and to, to resistant to every sort of you know every um, recommendation or policy that's been enacted since since COVID um, to me they are simply acting out um, in accordance with the the sort of shape of our uh, political culture today where every single decision every new thing divides people into camps, um, uh, w- one prominent one of which is going to be uh, cer- centered around conspiracy theories. And that's it. Oh, look, and- I mean, yeah. So I got a very literate email yesterday from somebody who said, I love your podcast. I'm listening to it. I just, when you went off on this rant the other day about how stupid everybody is, who doesn't get, who won't get the vaccine. I'm Canadian. I'm 34. I'm not going to get the vaccine. I, you should listen to Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather, and on their podcast, they're talking about ivermectin. So all this stuff is together. And you know, that 6,000 people do say no one's died from, from the vaccination regime and 6,000 people have died from the vaccination regime in the United States. This is not true. I mean, I, I mean, I can't, it's impossible to detail how not true this is when there was a worry that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine might be creating heart problems for seven people out of 8 million who had been vaccinated. The CDC issued that guidance about how you should maybe not take the Johnson Johnson vaccine if you were a woman between the ages of 20 and 50. That's what happens when the data come back bad. Seven potential cases out of eight million. That's not, that's less than one in a million. If 6,000 people had died from the vaccination regimes, the vaccination regimes would have been stopped. But people will believe anything that they hear. This is part of the political point of our time is that, is that people will believe false data that confirms their priors 
in an astonishing way. They'll just they'll they 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 can't help it. If this were polio, if this were polio, and we were talking about the polio vaccine, but it were 2020 and 2021, we'd see the exact same thing happening. It has nothing to do with the exact content of 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 the vaccine or or this particular virus. And to the Brett Weinstein uh, and Heather Heyer point, um, I you know they uh, about cancel culture. I love to listen to them. I've met them; they're really thoughtful people. They are also professional contrarians now, and so they have been on their podcast, kind of in a contrarian way, trying to uh, look at all this stuff. I disagree with the conclusions they've drawn about uh, vaccination risks. And actually, our friends at Quillette have just published a piece by Claire Berlinski and Yuri Digan that that sort of takes apart some of the claims that they're making on their podcast and invites them to a written exchange of ideas where you can actually, you've got to document this stuff and, and show your work, as they say. So I would, I, I, you know, I like Brett and Heather a lot, but yeah. on the vaccination stuff, I think they are spreading uh bad information and i hope people are not i I don't know that it is that i don't know that it is they who who promulgated the six thousand people dead thing so i don't want to blame them for that mostly they seem from what i gather to be saying that um treatment regimes have been um kind of forced away from the public conversation right um and they're hyper skeptical uh, about yeah. some of the reported and, data about yeah. vaccination again yeah. i think they were very brave and remember these were these are people on the left who were uh at you know this lunatic college in, in in northwest washington and had and had their had their lives partially destroyed uh in the most insane way and so i don't want to i don't want to pick at them but yeah professional contrarianism has its place and it's an important part of all conversations that that they toby young in in england with his lockdown skeptics uh website and stuff like that it's good it's very important that that there is a voice there but you know it still is incumbent on individual people uh, who are trying to think this through seriously to be able to make distinctions. For example, in the ultimate lockdown distinction, it is not everything is all the same thing. It was clearly a mistake to insist on this, you know, sort of um, insane hyper cleaning regime, uh, which, by the way, people are still doing in stores and stuff like that. They're still wiping down the counter after every, you know, after every. A uh, commercial transaction at certain drugstores and places like that. I mean, it's Nirvana not, for germaphobes, but it's yeah, unnecessary. Yeah, right. Okay, but closing, trying to make sure that small spaces that aren't perfectly ventilated aren't overstuffed with people was not a mistake. I'm sorry, like that was not a mistake. It was a mistake to close beaches down. It was a mistake, and by the way. At the time, it seemed insane because of the open air, uh, locking playgrounds, which, you know, de Blasio and Cuomo did in New York State, that stuff. All of that, by the way, was done not because they really thought that COVID was going to spread on playgrounds. It was because this is where we get into trouble with, like, liberal, the liberal love of government. They were trying to make it clear to people that they should stay in their homes. And therefore they were using these emergency powers to make being outside as unattractive as possible, unless you were going for a walk. You weren't supposed to run by the way, because if you run, you sweat, you, you know, you, whatever you might expectorate in some fashion or shed virus through your, through your sweat, which might shake on someone, but you could take a walk. That was the only thing you were supposedly allowed to do. And it is creepy. It is horrible and creepy in government that they should be, have been pushing and promulgating that. And it was clear at the time, but that doesn't mean say closing a movie theater wasn't the right thing to do. Um, by the way, it wasn't clear at the time that closing schools in the spring of 2020 was the wrong thing to do either when you just didn't know what the condition and circumstances were in the schools or how this thing was spreading yet. People didn't really know yet. The whole point is that by by June or July, it became very clear what the patterns were. And then the lockdown rules didn't change partially because liberals liked them and were still... And then we were in locked in this ridiculous ideological struggle where you're whether if you had fealty to the most 
fundamentalist uh, lockdown regime, or what my what my uh, what my friend Raquel Hers called um, uh, called glot COVID. Uh, for those of you who know Kashrut, um, you know if you if you were glot COVID, you were you were making clear if you weren't just a, a terrified, you were making clear what your political affiliation was and what your social affiliation was and all of that. That's the worst possible, but, but now, but now it's happening now. And we've had seven months of vaccination now. It's seven months of vaccination. Like, I, I don't even know what the number is. Is it, is it 175 million Americans have been vaccinated or more have had at least one shot? Or, that's like, more. that's insane. Think, think about that. If, 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 if people were dying from the vaccines, everybody would know somebody who had died from the vaccine. But it doesn't. Uh, but you don't understand how the cons- not even conspiracy minded, but the hyper skeptical of government mind works, which is that we wouldn't know because they're hiding it, right? That's where okay. you get. That's where the. Well, but then you get starts. the then you get the reverse, which is of course they're hiding the fact that COVID isn't as lethal as they say. Right. That's the no, other I mean, one, right? Which yeah. is oh yeah, six hundred thousand people have died. Sure, tell me another. You know. Well, and yeah, I know you see the jokes about you know the deaths that are called for COVID or you know I mean that actually that still because like, I love them the south yeah, part died the, with covid as opposed to died from of covid, COVID. right yeah, well, lots of people yeah. died with covid um who didn't die of covid 332 million doses have been administered in the u.s that's doses that's doses so that means and and the number of yeah so we're 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 over half are we over half the population now no we're not quite over half. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, somewhere there's a number. Anyway, I mean, like you know, people would be like dying in the streets. That's like being given. It's like giving. There were 35 million cases. There have been 35 million diagnosed cases of COVID in the United States. We've given 10 times that amount of vaccine. People would be like literally keeling over in the streets from 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 the consequences of the vaccine. If the vaccine were were deadly or lethal, uh, okay. Well, I have the number here. I'm wrong. So, fifty five point one percent of the U.S. population have been given one dose. Wait, is that the entire or just the population over? Well, so it has to be the population over, over 12. the age of twelve. Yes, is yeah. it over the age of twelve or over the age? Of I'm 18? looking at Bloomberg, and it, and it okay. only says of population. But so, okay, so well all. then, so so, you know, this is the other thing about this is we're looking at this. That's, you know, when you sort of pull back a little, it's kind of amazing to think about that. So out of nowhere, we developed this vaccine by the time July, you know, the July 4th week rolls around from a standing start, 170 million people have got, gotten a, a, a shot. They've man, they've manufactured enough vaccine and figured out how to administer enough vaccine, get it to enough places. Uh, we all stood on long lines and stuff originally. Now you don't even have to do that. When has there been a mobilization like that before in this well, just raw number? It's kind of jaw-dropping when you think about it. And it's, I asked, I think that's where, again, uh, to the messaging point, there, there needs to now be a very clear distinction drawn between what we were in for the past year, which was a public health emergency, the lockdowns, all the, all the restrictions, all the emergency powers granted to elected officials were given because we were in an emergency situation. And what we were mainly looking at were case rates and death rates, right? We were looking at hospitalizations. We were worried about having enough beds and, and whatnot. All of that was legitimate to do. The pandemic is still going on. It's a global thing. It's still raging. The public health emergency in our particular country is over. And that is where I think you need to have a very clear messaging strategy of, okay, the emergency is over. The powers that we gave now need to be brought back to where they should be. All the things that were closed are open. We're moving on. However, we still have a pandemic virus that has to be managed going forward. We cannot eliminate it. And it's that zero uh, zero COVID thinking that still seems to grip a lot of people Um and, and the denialism on the other side that COVID was ever that big a deal. Those two things are still way too dominant, I think, in the cultural conversation about the pandemic right now. Boris Johnson last week said, we need to learn to live with COVID. Now, he's a different kind of leader from Biden. Britain is a different kind of country. It has a different kind of 
a history of having its uh, prime ministers do, you know, cold truth telling as opposed to cheerleading and all of that. That's, you know, Churchill's, you know, Dunkirk speech and all, you know, sort of like the, you know, depressing the hell out of you about the horrors that face you is sort of like something that's, that's part of the, the British political tradition and really is not part of the American political tradition. Um, Biden somehow cannot probably say, look, we're never getting rid of this thing. So we're going to have to live with it the way we live with the flu. Um, and it's going to spark in this and that. But fortunately we have a treatment for it, da, 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 da. but somehow, uh, the logic of zero COVID has overtaken the way we talk about all this. Like we need to, it, winning means nobody worries about COVID anymore. And obviously that's just not going to be a thing for a decade. Like we're going to have to worry about COVID to the extent that rational people are going to have to go every year and get some kind of a COVID shot the way rational people get a flu shot. Maybe. Um, I mean, they don't. They they don't know yet. What they don't know. Fair. Type of okay, booster schedule. That's true, and it could it could have a five year duration, or you could may may need to get a booster if there's a new variant or whatever, which is not even this. I'm just saying, like, we're never we're not going to be at a point at which there are 25 cases of COVID a day. What we need to get to the point of is not counting them is emotionally getting to the point where we're no longer using the count as some kind of a, and you know, I mention it all the time. And so do we, and we're sort of like trapped in this. Are we getting to below 10,000? Are we getting below 10,000? You know, it's like this artificial number that Fauci came up with. That is like the 10,000 steps thing. By the way, did you read this fantastic? There's a little piece in the New York times about 10,000 steps, you know, which is the thing if you have a, pedometer tracker, you know, a Fitbit or something like that. The whole thing is you need to get 10,000 steps a day and where this number came from. So I, and why it's so insanely arbitrary just very quickly. So Abe is going to love this. Abe is going to love this since he has his exercise theories. (laughs) So, uh, after the Tokyo Olympics in Japan, there was a fitness craze in Japan. And so somebody designed an entrepreneur designed a pedometer And the pedometer had a logo made out of Japanese characters that looked like a man walking. But the characters added up to an ideogram. I mean, you know, I don't know. Is that what you call? I mean, I. Well, the kanji can, yeah, yeah. I mean, they can. The the characters in Japanese, which, you know, were in in, in those, those languages, I guess, are ideogrammatic. Anyway, if you converted them into the ideograms, it said 10,000 step man better than running man, I guess. And so that's literally where it was an advertising slogan logo, but it wasn't supposed to be read, but this is literally where that number comes from. So, so Fauci 10,000 hours with the number of hours that the Beatles supposedly played to get to be great musicians, according to Malcolm Gladwell. And now Fauci has set 10,000 as this kind of, magic number that we need to get below to think that we've that we've won so basically what we need to do is eliminate the number ten thousand from our lives in all in all in all places um let me just uh pull back for a minute and talk to you guys about our advertiser aura look the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade but security tools have mostly stayed the same aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts finances devices and more all in one easy to use app it provides digital security protection. It's all in one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name, Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with $1 million in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced US based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your online information and devices with one simple subscription. With an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. And right now, Aura has a limited time offer for our listeners to get early access and three free months when you visit Aura.com slash commentary. Go to Aura.com slash commentary to get access before anyone else and three months for free for a limited time. That's A-U-R-A 
dot com slash commentary. Um, Christine, uh, Donald Trump yesterday announced the filing of a class action lawsuit in which he will be the principal litigant or whatever you call that, you know, uh, against Facebook, Twitter, Google, Google. Google. Those are the three major ones. Yeah. But I, I have to correct you and say he didn't file a lawsuit. Oh, he he launched a fundraising campaign because okay, yeah, this is yeah. just a grift. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. he, he's arguing that uh, he, his First Amendment rights have been violated by the big tech platforms. But of course, and he's calling for the for the Section 230 to be declared unconstitutional, the one that provides, you know, uh, these private companies the right to, to monitor their own platforms. It's a, it's it's legally absolutely a specious lawsuit. Everyone who, who knows even the the first thing about how the law works with regard to these platforms understands that. And the fact that he paired it with a big fundraising push and, you know, push messages out to his followers to, to donate and, and whatnot. Um, it, it's interesting though. It does come at a time where there's a lot of uh, antitrust discussion about the platforms. There is actually a lawsuit filed by the AGs of many States against Google and its app, uh, the way it uses apps on its platform. There, there are plenty of legit lawsuits that are, that are tackling the, the, power of big tech. Uh, Trump's is just a stunt and people should treat it with the, with the respect any such stunt would deserve. Okay. So we should just spell out that he said that, um, you know, his banning and the shadow banning of others and all of that is unconstitutional, uh, you know, violation of first amendment rights. Because he claims the platforms are state actors, which right. they are. Well, right. But ultimately you have to explain this very simply that the first amendment provides protection for speech from prosecution or interference by the government government. yes it it is silent to totally silent on the question of speech rights in regards to other private citizens and obviously any effort by the way you could make the claim that any effort by a by a court to limit google or facebook or twitter's whatever right to ban someone from the from a privately owned platform would itself be an unconstitutional infraction on their speech rights well and it's like i own this you don't get the right to say whatever you want on my microphone it's my microphone and there's away from me there's a huge number of problems with how these platforms actually determine what is and isn't misinformation or hate speech and whatnot in fact i've I've spoken to someone who's who serves who serves on uh, facebook's you know supreme court you know the one that that just recently decided that the Trump ban should last two years. They they really are struggling with how to Facebook, the company wants to outsource the legal and ethical questions to this board. And it does kind of take a hands-off approach, but the problem is baked into how these platforms are, were built, how they are used every day and their massive, massive size globally. So, I, I mean, Trump is actually correct to be concerned about how these platforms monitor speech, but he's legally incoherent about the solution. And it's, it's, um, you know, I, I, well, I think it's in some sense a winner for him because his, his diehards will send money and they love the issue. Um, it is still um, politically, he looks um, completely weak to me because he was president there. there as, as president, he could have done things um, as a as a, as a citizen, you know, uh, uh, over sour grapes over his election loss. Um, this is that's a very different story. I mean, I I'm of. 17 different minds about this. Obviously there seems to be some kind of a, uh, uh, an enforce and, uh, an, an unjust enforcement of, uh, political standards against, um, let's say right-wing extremists as opposed to left-wing extremists. Um, you know, we hear about the banning of all kinds of right-wingers for promulgating false claims about the election. Um, uh, you know, sort of like supporting January 6th, whatever. Um, but, you know, uh, Cory Bush is still on Twitter uh, claiming that, you know, uh, America is e- making false claims about America. I mean, I'm not saying by the, I don't think Cory Bush should be banned from Twitter. Um, and I don't really think Trump should be banned from Twitter. Although Twitter is within its rights, as is Facebook, to say, look, if you want to use our platform, 
you can't walk around, you know, like inciting riot. Like we, we, we are liable if people went to, you know, went to Washington on January 6th, gotten there, got there in large measure through the organizing power of our platforms and then staged a riot. Let's not even talk now about the insurrection question or the overthrowing the government question. Just staged a riot and ended up there, ended up being a violent event that was a riot that I, I, if if people who are listening to my voice do not accept that at the very least what happened there that you can watch with your eyes was a was a riot that involved people resisting the legitimate use of um you know organizing police force to prevent uh the unlawful entry into buildings and beat people up and all of that then i don't know what to say to you go listen to somebody else like you're embarrassed it embarrasses me that you're even you even think that we have anything in common but i'm not talking about insurrection or whatever i'm just saying if they say look we we just can't be party to the organization of events that lead to riots or you know uh, or to violence okay but okay I got to interrupt you, though, to say Facebook has long known that it's exactly that um, if we look at a global context. So the, the most egregious case was in Myanmar, where the military used Facebook to organize ethnic cleansing in the country. I mean, everyone knew they were doing it. It was very clear what they're doing. Facebook was ringing and says, oh, what can we do about this? Oh, I don't know how this happened. They know exactly how it happened. There are ways that they can control this. They don't do it for a reason. And they and I think that's why the, the conservative response and the backlash against big tech's efforts to do this now with regard to Trump and, and, and other groups in the U.S., it rings hollow because we know Facebook's record. Facebook's record on this is clear globally. They really, they've created a monster they can't control and or they know how to control it, but they only do it selectively. And that it's the selective enforcement yeah. of their own regulations that I think that, have people right. that, that, is, that is exactly the problem. And of course, there's something really tragic about this development because where this all started, of course, was this notion that the Arab Spring was the first real social media uh, freedom explosion, right? That it was kind of organized. People knew where to go, what to do in, in Egypt and Tahrir Square and all these places uh, because social media was used uh, as as the as the flashpoint to inform people about how about about how this was going. And of course, that was sort of like a heartening moment, right? A kind of like a revivifying moment of expression of human freedom and the desire for liberation and all of that. And then, you know, nine years or 10 years later, you had, you know, people storming the Capitol building. Um, so th- that power originally harnessed for, you know, what appeared to be positive purposes turns out to be morally neutral uh that it can be used by anybody in any way if you're not careful which is you know kind of the story of all technology what well, well, once right. again yeah exactly yeah the the yeah the, the peaceful atom or the or the nuclear you know the, the atomic energy or an atomic bomb right i mean it it, yeah. it is you know as as someone who also agrees that um you know less banning in general is better um there is something absolutely maddening about the fact that on platforms like Twitter, um, someone uh, conservative who does does says something that could be um, very uh, complicatedly misinterpreted as bigoted will get banned, but virtually every left wing anti semite gets a free pass. Yeah, including including the you know including the leaders of Iran. Sure. I mean that you can ban Trump and not ban the leaders of Iran is a pretty striking fact. But um you know not to trigger the you know oh you're so mean to Trump thing but you know I Trump yesterday the day before yesterday gave a speech in which he said which he implicitly said that the uh, Capitol police that a Capitol policeman had murdered um uh, Ashley, uh, Babbitt, the woman who was killed, uh, during the, during the riot, who was shot during the riot coming through, you know, the broken door and said, all of those who have been arrested, uh, on uh, January 6th must be released, um, from no, they, no, they mustn't like what, 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 what now is this? Like I, I, as I recall, I was told 
that on the day of January 6th that Trump uh, hadn't liked the riot. You know, I mean, the, the, the line of the Trump apologist was that he had come out, he had said, go home, he had said it was bad, it wasn't a good thing, and all of that, and now it's seven months later, and he is taking up the cause of the, of the 500 or so people who were arrested. Now, c- probably some of these arrests were preposterous. There was a story yesterday I sent you guys in Rolling Stone that some guy who they had made, who's, you know, they had made his face through one of those facial recognition programs and had arrested him somewhere. And one of the things that, that, that they, that they found at his home was that he had made the Lego capital, you know, that Lego has these buildings you could make, you know, the Coliseum and the Empire State Building. And, you know, my, my, my kid has made, I don't know what he made, he made, uh, can't even remember. We uh, made the Death Star. My kids yeah, made the, the Death, Death Star. Star. That's already that's seven thousand. That's very impressive. You made the Death Star. It's like seven thousand pieces. But you can make the capital out of Lego, and so the idea was, well, maybe he'd made the capital out of Lego in order to plan the insurrection. So that's bonkers and disgusting, and like that's where you start seeing how a different kind of moral panic can seize, you know, law enforcement agencies where they, where there's okay. some nerd making Lego buildings. And then his making the capital is a sign that he was, what was he taking? Like tiny little, you know, like little Lego figures and moving them through the Lego capital to see where, which hallway they could. It's not that detailed. It's not, you know, it's not a million pieces and you can lift off the top and then, you know, move things around it's a lego building it's not but, a scale but, among but other trump but trump's saying that is actually important to note because what if, if he's going to start arguing that lawlessness and violence on behalf of one's ideological cause is now suddenly okay because that cause was on his behalf what does that mean about everything he said about Antifa, about the post-George Floyd rioting and violence? None of He's completely contradicting what I think was an important message for a political leader to make at the time about some of those uh, violent activities. It's all undermined now, and, and, and right. not surprisingly. But this is, I mean, look, it just it gives the game away, which is that you like violent, you know, every, in the end, people don't mind violence as long as it's on their side. Or they say it didn't happen, or they say it wasn't, it was misunderstood, or it was... <laughs> It was, you know, excessive exuberance or something like that. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's what Trump is essentially saying, right? Was that the was the January sixth was mostly peaceful, and it simply wasn't mostly peaceful. I mean, I don't know. The gaslighting is insane. Just watch the footage. We watched it in real time. The the ability of people to talk themselves out of what is right in front of them and that was happening right in front of them on a day. And then because they don't like the political aftermath, you know, should tell us something about the nature of reality and how people perceive reality and how easy it is to change the perception of reality when you don't really like it. You just sort of insist that reality, the reality wasn't what you thought it was. We're always, you know, we're, we, what, what was it that David Hume said about reason and the passions? I'm, I'm trying to remember, but it's sort of like reason is the handmaiden of the passions. That reason is, in the end, reason reason is there to kind of circumscribe the passions, but it can't really. It often is used as their, you know, as 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 as, as the the apologist for the passions. And we always think that as long as we can sort of like see things. I was even saying this about COVID. 20 minutes ago, right? Like that we, as long as we can see things clearly, we can have, make a more rational calculation, but maybe that is just something that we, in, a, in our time is that's a, that's a delusional hope. Okay. Well, to, to go back to the platforms for a minute, one of the reasons it's easier to do that now to construct alternative realities or to deny the reality that's right in front of you is that the platforms on which people share those information and, and talk about this stuff are driven by emotional appeal, right? It doesn't matter if you're, they just want an emotional reaction. It doesn't matter if it's happy or sad. Actually, angry is ideal because you're more engaged. They want um, engagement and engagement is not a neutral thing when it involves, you know, violence and anger, or even when it involves enthusiasm and happiness. It's all the same to the algorithm that, that drives people to one, to one land on one page or another. And in that sense, I, I do think that the new platforms are not quite quite as morally neutral in the same way as some of 
the previous technologies we've developed. They are designed to appeal to the the most base uh, reactions, whether that's a good thing for society or a bad thing. They are designed that way. They're not designed to be neutral about those emotions. They want engagement. Engagement is often uh, a negative thing if it's driven by anger and paranoia and fear. Right. Um, you know, time to talk about the X chair. We got, you only have a couple of days. You got a couple of days until that price increase I've been telling you about for the X chair, the luxury supercar of office chairs. Uh, the one that, uh, not only looks great, it feels amazing and it's so comfortable. You can sit for hours and never feel uncomfortable. It's that patented dynamic variable lumbar support offering that unbelievable support to your lower back and its new Elemax featuring cooling heat and massage therapy. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while sitting at your desk. Elemax offers four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy for your sore back. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel it for yourself. Trade in that old uncomfortable office chair, trade up to an X chair those prices are going up on July 11th for the first time in two years. This is July 8th. As I'm talking to you, you have very little time. Beat the price increase. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call one 844 x to save $100 off your order. Xchair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X wheel blade casters. That's X chair commentary.com. Um, so I don't have much more to say, uh, amazingly enough. Uh, anybody got anything to say? Well, to like, well, we need to, we need to talk for another couple of minutes. Well, so we'll, we're not ending on an ad. We'll have to, uh, we'll have to reconvene tomorrow to see what, uh, Biden says about Afghanistan. I guess he's, they're they're meeting today to to talk about strategy and and communicating to the public about that which he's spent a week deflecting so yeah thinking back about what i just said so you guys know that um uh, many people listen to me over the years know that the uh, the odd couple is my 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 favorite all-time favorite tv show with tony randall and jack klugman and i was i read a book about the making of the odd couple and um uh, sitcoms always had this problem, which is that there was a commercial break, uh, you know, around the 22nd or 23rd minute. And then you come back for like a minute and a half and then run the, run the end credits and then ads for the next show. And so you basically ended the show before that ad break. Cause the plot had to end. So there was this coda and they always had to figure out something to do with the coda and reading about how they, mostly Klugman and, uh, and, and, and Randall improvised jokes or bits relating to what had just happened, uh, you know, involving one of them being sloppy and the other being, and the other being fastidious. And they made, you know, I don't know, 110 episodes or something, and they managed to pull something off. So maybe in the future, we can, you know, I'm now reading the stage instructions. We just, we need to improvise a, 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 you know, better ending if we, if we, if we get to that point, but, uh, the odd couple, I believe now on Paramount plus, by the way, if you want to watch the greatest of all sitcoms, I don't even know if it is, if it's just that I saw it in my, you know, teens and twenties and it was, it's a very much a New York show. And so it, uh, it was redolent of that. It's just comforting now. I mean, I, you know, I, I find it comforting, but, but I mean, that's basically why, you know, enjoy watching any old TV. I mean, mostly yeah. it's, it's more comforting okay. than it is quality. Okay. I got one for you. So, uh, this weekend, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm out at the beach and we had some friends over, uh, at, at, at our house at the beach. And it turned out that they had never seen what is, I think, universally, almost universally considered the greatest of all sitcom episodes, which is um, a, a Mary Tyler Moore show, Chuckles Bites the Dust, which is an episode about how the uh, the clown on the TV station that the cast all works for, WJM, uh, is the, is the uh, grand marshal of the parade. Uh, in town and uh, is dressed up as a peanut and is crushed by an elephant. And, uh, and so I hadn't seen it in years. I told them about it. They were like, Oh, 
you know, blah, blah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I kind of like that show. You know, people who are like 10 years younger than I am. And so we actually found it and sat down and, and, and watched it. And it is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I mean, again, I've probably seen it 15 times and I was crying, laughing again, again and again and again. Um, and so if you haven't seen that, I, I it was either on Hulu or on Paramount plus it maybe was on Hulu, uh, chuckles bites the dust. If you watch it and you don't think it's funny, email me and tell me that then I will, I will, I will insult you the way I insult people who don't. I also feel like that we we can then we can we can kind of welcome chuckles bites the dust into our metaphor library that we often deploy. That would be. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, it is a it is a it is it it stands up is what I'm saying. It's almost fifty years old, and uh, and it is. um, uh, As I said, like I think on lists, you know, like Entertainment Weekly did a list. You know, it's like of the hundred top sitcom episodes, it, it it almost always ends up. Uh, as the as the num as the number one, and it is almost fifty years old, and it it it, it remains just you know the, uh, a work of I can't even describe it because it's black comic, but it isn't, but it is, and it's really about how we feel about death. And anyway, give it a shot. So with that, we'll we'll be back tomorrow for Abe and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs> <laughs>